Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. Amen. Well, welcome to church. So glad you're here. Turn, let somebody know you're glad that they made it. Glad to see them. Learn somebody's name. Exciting. So, um, most of you know we have had some exciting couple of weeks. Um, this past week, we had Steve Hage here. He stayed over. We did some special services. Um, I'm still hearing reports about things that God did in people's lives, the prayers that have been answered, um, purposes that were discovered and, and, and pursued. We are super excited. Thank you to everyone who came. Thank you to everybody who volunteered. Um, and, and helped make the, the children's church available and all those kinds of things. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So it's been a couple of weeks because last week we had Steve and, Steve and then the week before that was Mother's Day. But if you recall, um, I began a series of going through James. Anybody remember that? Okay, um, it's the third week, but we haven't got to the third chapter. We're still in chapter two. Um, and we, we got to chapter two, verse one last week, but I'm gonna start there again just to get context. Can you put that up? Because I didn't put one here. So my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Jesus Christ, the Lord must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in Lost it. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the man, the poor man, stand there, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse five says, listen, my brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of heaven? He promised those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor. And it is not the rich who are, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you to court? Are they not the ones that are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law of scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Okay, so we're gonna unpack that. He talks, we talked a little bit about um, the prejudices and, and judging people by what you expect from them and how God says that's not right. And then we see here, he says that it's not about that he did something wrong by treating the rich right. He says, when you dishonored the poor, what was wrong wasn't giving him a seat, it was giving him a seat and then refusing it to the poor person. Had he given both people a seat, he'd have been fine. He says something here, he says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Now that term, love your neighbor as yourself, that comes from Leviticus 19.18. That was a part of, of the original law of Moses, and the Jews knew it very well. Now, how many of you have ever tried to find a loophole in instructions you were given? So this is what had happened. There were over a thousand years of examining that scripture. It says, 
love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, in, verse, in John 13, 14, he said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. How is that different? Love your neighbor as yourself, love one another as I have loved you? I mean, wouldn't we kind of agree at first glance it's love and love? But Jesus said, I'm giving you a new commandment. This one's different. Why? Because the first one said, love your neighbor as yourself. Does that mean I have to love everybody? Not if they're not my neighbor. <laughs> I only got to love my neighbor. And there's, there's an entire story in the Bible where they came and they said to Jesus, hey, Help me out here. Who really is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? I mean, who do I get to leave out? Do I really have to love everybody? And the parable of the Good Samaritan is the story of a Samaritan man who discovers a Jewish person beaten and hurt on the roadside. Now, by every definition that they would have had, those two were not neighbors. The Samaritans lived in a different city. They were forbidden to, to, to mingle. It was, it was like, you just don't. They, they were the opposite of neighbors. These are the people I don't talk to. I don't li- they don't live by me. We don't, sh- we don't ever buy houses in the same neighborhood. We don't, we're completely separate. And then Jesus said, he happened past him and he helped him. And in the parable, we had actual Jews who would have been considered their neighbor who for various reasons did not stop. And then he said, who was his neighbor? See, the the revelatory thing about the story of the Good Samaritan wasn't how kind he was. It wasn't that he's showing love. It was that he went across like defied prejudices to do so. If we think about it, what Jesus was saying is the, 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 the old definition of loving people because of their similarity to you, ditch it. He said, skip it, gone. Your neighbor isn't defined by who's like, because that's how they defined it. They said, my neighbor, that's who lives near me. Who lives near me? Well, all the other people like me. I mean, to this day, neighborhoods, not all neighborhoods, but neighborhoods tend to be similar. You go to one area and everybody makes about the same amount of money and often have the same ethnic backgrounds. And then you go to another neighborhood, another neighborhood. So when, if you lived in a world that was even more divided than that, when you read the verse that said, love your neighbor as yourself, you'd be tempted to say, well, I guess I gotta love the people who are like me. But Jesus said, I give you a new law. He said, love one another as I have loved you. Now, how did Jesus love? He loved everybody. He loved the rich and the poor. The fact the Pharisees got all mad at him because he was, he was mixing with the sinners and he went to their house and had dinner and he was, he was praying for the sick and he was going everywhere and he talked to the Samaritan woman and he would walk through and it was like, 
Who doesn't this guy love? And Jesus said the new law is don't just love your neighbor as you want to be loved, but love one another, not just your neighbor, but one another, as I have loved you. That new standard that was you are going to love and you're going to break prejudices to do so. You're going to love the poor just the way that you love the rich. You're going to love those who are similar to you just like you love those who are not similar to you. James chapter 2 verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. This one, it, 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 it gets to us. Why? Because we want to think of ourselves as being pretty good. The law of God is the law of God. Now, it has many commandments, but it's one law. What he says is, if, if I said don't commit adultery and I said don't murder, and you decide to disobey one of those but not the other, you still disobeyed. You broke the law. You are a lawbreaker. You have sinned. If you think about it, we, we, we like to consider Sins is different. And you know what? The Bible does admit that sin can be different. There are greater sins and lesser sins. There is that. But think about this for a second. The original sin. I mean, did they like kill someone or rob a bank? They disobeyed. They were told, don't eat fruit from that tree. They were given one rule. They broke that one rule. Didn't matter that they broke it to murder. They didn't matter to broke it to steal. They broke it. All sin, every sin, each and every one of us has broken one of the laws. We have to recognize as such, I like to picture it as a chain. How many of you have ever gotten stuck in the snow before and had to be pulled out by another vehicle? If they come with a chain to pull you out. And that chain, each one of those links can hold 7,000 pounds. But one of them is rusty and weak and it breaks. Does it matter that all the others were in pristine condition? You're not gonna pull. In order for the chain to function, every link has to be whole. When it comes to sin, Yes, there are people out there, every link in their chain is rusty. But you know what? You have a few rusty links too. And you're just as useless at pulling yourself out of sin as they are. You need God's help. First, or John 19.11 says, Jesus answered, you could have... No power at all against me unless it has been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus does acknowledge there is 
bigger sin and lesser sin. People get irritated at the concept that God has forgiven everyone equally and they think about, well, what if Hitler makes it to heaven because he asked for forgiveness? Aren't I better off than Hitler? When it comes to getting into heaven, none of us get there because of what we did. Period. So in that sense, none of us are worthy enough to get ourselves to heaven. We all rely on the righteousness of Christ that was given to us on the cross. And the Bible says it is not by works so that no one can boast. But you know what? The Bible does talk about works. The Bible does say that in heaven you will be rewarded for your works. You're not going to get into heaven because of your works. Say it with me. I cannot work my way into heaven. We can't. Nobody can. Nobody can. Someone who has never done a good work in their life and someone who did tons of good works but still had one rusty link are both incapable of getting in themselves. But the Bible does say that we'll be rewarded in heaven for our works. You get in because of faith and that has nothing to do with it. But secret newsflash, heaven isn't a communist compound. The Bible talks about being rewarded. The Bible says that we will be judged and our works will be we put to a fire and the works that had no value that were selfish will just burn away. And that the gold and the rubies will be used and we will be rewarded. Your behavior does matter. You will be rewarded for righteous behavior. You just don't get into heaven for it. That doesn't get you there. James 2, 12 through 13 says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the mercy of God is stronger than the law because Jesus has suffered for us. We are free by the mercy of God. We are free because of God's mercy, not because of what we have done. What we do matters. The Bible says that when you judge others, you will be judged. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Do you hear what that says? Doesn't, it's not God isn't usually mocked. It doesn't say God prefers not to be mocked. It says God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The implication of this verse is to think that you don't reap what you sow would be to mock God. Our actions matter. James 2, 14 through 17 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Faith, when, when you think of faith, most of us think of an internal thought of belief. Do you have faith? And when, I, when you ask someone, do you have faith? They think, well, let, let me think about what I'm thinking. Right? Because we, we categorize faith as a thought, or even some people might have categorized it as a feeling. 
But that isn't quite what Scripture categorizes it as. It says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you say to him, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith will always, true faith, living faith, will always lead to action. To doing good. If, if you believe something, you need to act on it. If you believe something but don't act on it, that isn't faith. James 2.18 says, next verse, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Oh, you believe, but I'm doing. And he says, show me your faith without your deeds. And I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is a God. Well, good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. The demons know that God exists. Head knowledge is not enough. Verse 20, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not your father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son in obedience. He didn't have to. But his actions bore out what he believed. And the Bible says that his actions and his faith were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him as righteousness. We don't use the word righteousness except in church or in the 80s. I saw a movie the other day that uh, had Wesley Snipes in it and he was like, righteous. And I was like, oh, I almost wanted to clip that out as a meme. He was like, we don't use that term. And even when we, in the 80s and 90s, when they would use that term, they weren't thinking of it the way the Bible does. The Bible, when it says righteousness, it means right standing with God, free from the guilt of sin, on your way to eternity with him because you are no longer separated by the sin that would have made you unrighteous. So it's a big deal that something happened that was credited to Abraham as righteousness. He believed God. In the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't died on the cross and rose from the dead yet. We know from the story that Jesus told about Lazarus the beggar that the people who died believing in what Jesus would do did not go directly to, to God's presence because sin was still separating. They went to the place called Abraham's bosom where the Bible says Jesus, when he died and rose from the dead, went down and led, they use the term captivity, captive. he took that group of people who were waiting for their sin to be atoned for on the cross and took them, now that it was atoned for, and went to heaven. Now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It wasn't the case then. At that time, those who believed 
in what Jesus would do. It was credited to them the righteousness and they awaited along with Abraham for that completion. And Abraham was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Thinking, thinking it, believing it, it's not enough. It needs to translate into action. Verse 25, in the same way, Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. God says faith that is believed and not affecting your actions is dead. You can't just do the right thing. That's why faith theatrics like avoiding doctors and saying somebody something by itself is not a recipe for miraculous. If, if actions by themselves were sufficient, then we would have like books of incantations and, and, and things we'd say, you know what, do this exact thing. And it'll always turn out the same. Actions, you know, that there are people who fall into that trap thinking, well, if God sees me do this, then he will act. That is not the same as believing you have received. As a pastor, I've been asked, well, so-and-so did this or this happened. They did this thing. So shouldn't that mean, and the Bible is clear, it is your faith and your works together. If I am doing something, thinking what I do is going to change what God did, that isn't faith. I've used that example. If I use that example and I, I hope I'm not offending anybody who may have been around a situation like this, but as a, as a pastor, when somebody refuses medical care because they want to convince God to do something for them. It's bad. They have it backwards. They, their belief that he did that for them isn't there. They're trusting in their actions to force God's hand. Do you understand that? That's not faith. Have have I ever seen someone who did not seek medical attention who was healed? Yes, I have. But they did not refuse medical attention in order to receive healing. They believed that they had received already. It wasn't. Going to the doctor wasn't, or not going to the doctor wasn't what they thought was going to attain healing for them. It was their complete faith, I already have healing. They, their faith and actions, their their action was a result of their faith, not the the action trying to build or strengthen their faith or, 
or trigger God to do something that they didn't trust he had already done. As a pastor, if someone says to me that, you know what, well, if I, I say, look, get medical care. If the Holy Spirit says to you, this is, you're done, I'm fine. You know what? But I'm not the one telling them don't do that, lest they think that that's going to earn them the miracle. It doesn't. Our actions don't earn us a miracle. Our actions are a result of the belief and faith that we have, and it springs forth from that. Was I confusing? Okay. I hope that helps somebody. James 3, we made it chapter 3, 1 through 2, says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check. I used to read that verse, and it said, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach may be judged more strictly. And as I would read that, I would think, well, teachers are held to a higher standard on everything. But as I've grown older, I've come to realize that we're held to a higher standard for what we teach. This is talking about hypocrisy. This is talking about hypocrisy and how when you open your mouth and you declare truth, when you teach truth, then you are held more tightly to the truth that you have proclaimed. Now, here's the thing. Then his next statement, now, how many of you agree the writer of that verse, that's James, he's a teacher. The next word out of his mouth is, we all stumble in many ways. He didn't say you all stumble in many ways. He said, we all stumble in many ways. As a pastor, as a teacher, am I perfect? No. (laughs) My wife knows. She's smiling really big. Nope, you are not perfect. Absolutely not. Anyone who is never at fault, but here's here's the thing. We, as, as Christians, we need to recognize we are not looking to someone in particular, some leader, to be our end all be all example. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That means, but if he stops following Christ, you keep following Christ, not Paul. If word comes out tomorrow that I'm doing something stupid, don't do something stupid. Right? Don't think it's coming. But what I'm saying is, our faith isn't in individuals. We don't follow them. I grew up in the ministry. My dad, I respect him highly. He has been a consistent pursuer of God 
my whole life. Has he made mistakes? Yeah. Grateful, he's never had any kind of scandal. He hasn't made any of those kinds of mistakes. But I've been in the ministry long enough to see lots of people do lots of dumb things. And I don't expect perfection from them. What I expect is striving. There is a difference between someone who says, you know what? As a teacher, and I've I've met these people, God is using me so I have permission to do whatever dumb thing it is. I I can skim money off the top. I can have a a mistress. I can do whatever because, look, God's using me, and that's proof. No. No, you can't. The Bible, it, it was interesting, and I didn't pull the scripture up, but scripture says, I don't tell you to avoid the entire world when I say don't be involved with drunkards and and liars and all of that thing. He says, what I say is avoid those who profess to be brothers and then do those things. He's still talking about hypocrisy here. See, if if your teacher struggles with a temper, but he's struggling, He comes, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. I'm not going to say that I should have done that. I'm not going to say that you should do that. I'm not going to say I have permission to do that. I'm working on it. You know what? That's somebody I can respect and I can keep listening to. But someone who says, well, God uses me, therefore I can make mistakes and they don't matter. Gone. Gone. We as teachers must, we're held to a higher, stricter standard when we Expose truth, we need to follow that truth. The Bible says we stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. James says our mouths are a difficult thing to control. Difficult. James 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by such strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a very small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Whoa. Our words are so profoundly important and significant. Proverbs 18.20 says, A man's stomach will be satisfied from the root of his mouth, and from the produce of his lips he shall be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. What we say matters. James says the easiest mistakes to make are the ones with your mouth. But then he also says your life is steered by your mouth. You control a a horse. A horse weighs 1,000 pounds plus. And these little, you know, tiny jockeys, I mean, notice the jockeys are like the lightest people they can find. 
You got this thousand pound horse and you've got like this 80 pound jockey up there steering him with his mouth. A ship, giant, steered by the little rudder. What we say determines the course of our life. Romans 10, 6, in the New King James says it this way. It says, but righteousness of faith speaks this way. I'm going to read it in NIV. It says, but the righteousness that is by faith says. See, faith talks. It says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What is it? Faith. What does faith say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. God's word is in your mouth and in your heart. If you have faith, faith speaks like this. It speaks what's in its heart. And that is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith. How many of you recognize we are saved by faith? As Christians, we all understand. We have we have by faith been saved. But it's that same Faith, and it's that same combination that accomplishes other things spiritually. You were saved, your sins forgiven. You were made right with God. Why? Because you believed something. But if you believed it and didn't confess it, if you thought it but never said it, this is what it says. It says, you spoke says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. What I believe and what I do work together. I confess what I believe, and that brings about, in the, in the case of salvation, it brings around about salvation. James 3, 7 through 12. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever had poison come out of your mouth? Me too. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. God takes it seriously when we trash people with our mouth. And get this. He doesn't point to what they did this week. He says they were made in my image. Our value doesn't become, come from what we did. Our value comes from how we were made. 
Right now, the, the, the abortion debate is, is live and hot. What's, what's being argued really is, where does value come from? Why should a life be valued? Is it valued because of what it says? How complex its thoughts are? Or is it valued because of whose image it was made in? Do we have to prove a certain level of cognitive ability? Because here's the thing. A baby a week before it's born and a baby a week after it's born cognitively are pretty similar. And the philosophers and those thinkers who try to define worth through cognitive ability, the famous, I think, therefore I am, we've, we've all heard that, but don't realize how that lends itself to infanticide and has been quoted and used to argue that a child before it's self-aware is acceptable to eliminate without committing murder. Why? Because the value of a person comes from how, what they think or what they do or how they contribute. We as Christians recognize, no. Our value comes because we were made in God's image. The reason I don't trash my boss isn't because he's never done anything worthy of being trashed. I don't trash my boss because my boss, like me, was made in God's image. Has he, has he made some dumb decisions since then? Maybe. Is he frustrating? Maybe. But I show respect to him as a person because he's made in God's image. Out of the same mouth, he said it made in God's likeness. Verse 10, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Our words, remember what we learned just a few verses ago. Our words steer our lives. When we give in to the temptation to trash people with our words, we're steering ourselves in a direction we don't want to go. We are polluting ourselves in a way we should not desire. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I'm going to go back to the debate that's going on about life and children. This describes the source of that sort of wisdom as being demonic. The Bible says our 
battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spirits. We recognize that to protect life is, is good, it's right, it's godly. And those arguments, that wisdom is demonic that comes against it. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. He was just talking about the power of your words. And then he closes the chapter talking about peacemakers who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Nothing, no place are our words more obvious, their impact, than in interactions with other people. I mean, science has done studies that that prove your words have effect on plants, your words have effect on all kinds of things. But we don't see that as obviously. But you can. My, my son did an experiment in, I don't remember what year, junior high or elementary. Planted some plants, treated them the same, screamed at one of them, gave affirming words to the other, and saw a difference. And that's been repeated over and over again. We know that, that that matters, but where do we see it the most? Interacting with people. We as people, we respond to the words that people use and the spirit behind those words pretty quickly, don't we? We understand that. We know, we, we've grown up to know tone and understand it. We as Christians are called to be intentional with our words says, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. What we say to others impacts. It steers our life and it impacts theirs. The Bible says that wisdom brings humility. What is humility? Humility means not thinking too highly of yourself, recognizing the value that others have. And where does that value come from? It comes from God. We can say that that theme of of someone's value doesn't come from what they can give me. That was pointed out earlier on. If we treat the rich person one way and the poor person the other because we think that their value comes from what they can give me or their value is reflected in their bank account, or their value is reflected in in which neighborhood they live in, or what they look like. No. God says that the value of a person is determined when they were made. Most of us have seen the example, if I pull a $20 bill out of my wallet, it doesn't matter if it's crisp or wrinkled. If I spill coffee on it, or if it's still in good shape, they still both have the same value of $20. Why? Because their value is inherent in when they were made. That's what you and I and every person we come in contact is like. 
Their value doesn't come from how they treat you, how good they're managing what they have been given. No, they are made in God's image, therefore they have value even when they squander it. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to come here today. Lord, we just pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, remind us when to watch our mouths, when to avoid saying some of the things that, that come to our mind. Lord, I pray that you will help us to steer our lives with our words. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Lord, I pray that you will remind us where value comes from, that we will recognize that we are of the wrong spirit when we attack people. Even those who seemingly deserve it, you still have value for. I thank you that you never gave up on any of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.